Welcome. Week one of Jesus is so glad that you're here this morning. Um, lo- love doing this every year. I think I try to take on one series where all I want to do is just think about Jesus, talk about Jesus and see what it is that makes him the central figure of all of human history and why there's such a big deal and why there's such a fuss and why it is that we gather in his name. It, it's just it, it's the best. And so if you're here, I want you to just to kind of like be as open as you can to, to, to what we're going to talk about today, because here's here's what I know about you. And here's what I know about me is that you. You fill in the blank. And somebody's kid is tripping right now. Um, but, but beyond that, you're, you're filling in the blank. Um, I feel like that number's been there for a while, right? You need to go. Um, some children's workers pull their hair out right now. Go get that kid. Is that ours, babe? Is this not ours? Oh, thank God. Hey, I know. I don't judge you. I used to do that. When I was, you know, just married and we didn't have kids and we'd look at other parents and their crazy kid, be like, we ain't never having kids like that. I'll beat that kid. And um, I'd spank that. I wouldn't let that kid do that to me. And, and then and then you become a parent and you're like, oh, man, now I get it. Anyway, I digress. Um, the kid's good now. Um, here, here's what I know about you. Here's what I know about me is that we all fill in the blank somehow. That when somebody mentions the word Jesus, that something floods our mind, some kind of thought, a word, a picture, an idea, an emotion, attention, something does it. Have you ever noticed, too, how like Jesus seems to stir it up way more than God does when you mention God to people? Most of the time, people are kind of okay with God, like God's an ethereal idea, but then you put flesh and, and blood and all kinds of specific sayings and things, and all of a sudden, you, you went from the broader idea that maybe there's a supreme being out there to saying, but what about Jesus? What about this person? He was a, he was a man who walked the earth about 2,000 years ago, who claimed to be God. They killed him. His followers said he got up three days later, which would freak everybody out because nobody ever pulled that off before. Who is Jesus? And when you start talking to people about God, people are semi-okay about that, but then you start talking about Jesus and then something, something controversial kind of comes up. Have you ever noticed how we don't use cuss words with other prophets' names and other religious leaders' names? We don't do that, do we? Nobody's ever stubbed their toe and yelled Buddha or Muhammad or we, we don't we don't go there. But bless God, I've been on the golf course so many a day and thought people were worshiping the Lord. And, um, They just they're bad golfers. That's all it really was. And so my point is, there's something about that name. There's something about the person. There's something unique about it. And and you fill in the blank somehow or some way. Now, I remember uh, when I was uh, just I went to Bible college in Ohio and I was there and and I had to get a job because I, I needed to eat. And so as a college student, you're looking for a certain kind of job that can just kind of like make ends meet. You don't need anything career oriented. This is just to like, you know, to buy some McDonald's. That's really all that this is. And and some of the students at the Bible college were like, hey, you should check out the, this call center that there was, which call centers are demonic, right? They're, 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 it's a demonic place because everybody's depressed. And then like they transfer demonic. I'm just kidding. You ever been interrupted in dinner time? I don't even have a home phone anymore. Like, how many of you have gone the way of me? You don't even have a home phone. And typically they don't call your cell phone to solicit you. But back in the Dizay, uh, they would call you and interrupt you in the middle of dinner and try to sell you something that you didn't need. And that was me. 
for two weeks. Um, that's how long I lasted. I hated that job. And so, but while I was there for the two weeks, I remember sitting in a set of cubicles with a bunch of people and every once in a while we would all get a break from harassing people and, and, and being cussed out. And yeah, they do. And so some angry people out there. And I was talking to these girls, and they started, you know, just chit-chatting about what do you do and what are you up to. And, of course, I'm like, well, I'm in, I'm in college right now. And they're like, oh, where, where do you go? And so I mentioned I'm in Bible college. And they're like, really? So what's that all about? And they, they, we, they started to ask me about Jesus. And it was the first time that I had ever had a conversation with somebody who had almost no clue as to who Jesus was. And they were like, is he like a spirit or something? That was their answer. And I thought... We're in America, right? You know, that, that was my thought. Now, here's, that, here's why it was my thought. I grew up in the South. And in the, in the South, tons of people go to church. It seems like the majority of people go to church. Like, Jesus is in the water. You drink it as a kid. You grow up. You just know who Jesus is, and that's the way that it goes. But then you move up north, where people aren't as, you know... It's not as in the water up north, okay? So I'm in Ohio now at this point in time, and these people have no idea who Jesus is, and it blew my mind. I just thought, doesn't everybody know who Jesus was? And here's what I figured. They don't. They don't. And then I start expanding my horizon even further. You know, I moved to Michigan later. I moved to California. I start reading other things, listening to other people, talking to other people. And I realize, no, everybody's got a really, really broad view of who Jesus is. And i got to be honest with, with you right now. When I was a kid, even though I went to church and I, 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 you know, my parents made me go to church. I don't know if you grew up like that, but they just made me go, which is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. People say, like, well, kids should decide. You, you don't let your kids decide what they eat for breakfast. So don't you, you're tripping. So. The fact that you take them to church is a good thing. They can, as an adult, later decide what, whatever they want, but it's good. Never let anybody talk you out. It's good to take your kid to church. I don't want to get into that, why that is, but just, just trust me on that for now. But as a kid, even, I wasn't totally bought into the whole Jesus thing because I'd never had any type of real experience with God. It was just my parents' religion. Anybody ever felt like that before? It was my parents' deal. They believed in God, and they just drugged me there. And there was a felt board, and they stuck a little little character of Jesus on there and said, that's Jesus, and he loves the little children. I'm like, all right, cool. And so, but I didn't have like a genuine experience with Jesus. I had nothing real. I wasn't smart, so I didn't have an intellectual experience with Jesus. I just knew who Jesus was. And so then I became a teenager, and then you start facing more challenging questions like, well, who is he, and was he really the son of God, and how does this all work? And then, you know, my conclusion was this, because I would just rather go get stoned than go to church. I would just like to assume that Jesus was like the original hippie. He had long hair, robe. Birkenstocks. He looked like a child of the 60s, right? Like, that's the way he looked. And I thought, you know what? He's probably just a good guy. He's just a good moral teacher. And I'm, and I'm down with that, right? And that sounds good, too, because Jesus is a good teacher, right? And he had some great things to say. And if you just lived the way of Jesus, your life would probably be better. That was just kind of the way that I took it. Now, I didn't actually live most of those things, but I thought it was a good idea. And then... And then I had my own unique experience, and I learned how to fill in the blank for myself. And I'll tell you what that looks like in just a second. But if you have your Bible, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 16, because Jesus actually has a conversation with his 12 followers, the people that he was closest to. And I find this fascinating. How long were they with Jesus before they had this experience? It was pretty deep into their journey together. And, and this is how Jesus sets up his fill-in-the-blank moment with the 12 people closest to him. All right, you ready? Matthew chapter 16, this is what Jesus says. 
or the Bible says, the Bible says that Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked disciples saying, who do people say the son of man is? Now, the son of man is the title that Jesus gave himself. And I'll explain that in a minute. But that's he's saying, who do who do people say that I am? And, and, and real quick, just to clarify this moment, Jesus is not having like an insecure moment. You ever, you, ever like, you, you have those like, do I look OK? You know, you get done with your sermon like, babe, was my sermon all right? Was that, you know, you just have these moments where you're like, did I do okay? Was I, am I all right? Wait, this was not Jesus having an insecure moment like, guys, how are we doing? I mean, we're going for this whole God thing. Is it, was it working? You know, he wasn't, that's not what this was. But he asked the question, who do people say that I am? Next, next verse. So they replied, meaning the disciples replied, and they just say, hey, well, here's what people are saying. Here's the consensus. Here's what is the rumor mill. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. And others still like, well, maybe Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And this is fascinating to think about. Everybody responds to Jesus for some reason, like everybody, you're you're filling the blank for Jesus has something to do with your past. It has something to do with an experience that you had. It had to do with your upbringing. And, and there's all kinds of different reasons why people fill in the blank. But just know this. Your reason comes from somewhere. It would be really, really good to figure that out. So, for example, like the reason why some were saying he was John the Baptist. Maybe we'll talk about this next week. There's this guy named Herod. And he actually murders or kills John the Baptist, who was a prophet. And so then because of his own guilt and his own conviction, because he had done something really, really wrong, when Jesus showed up, he starts freaking out, thinking, oh, dear Lord. He thought John the Baptist had come back from the dead to haunt him. So the reason, so John the Baptist's answer here came from somewhere. The reason why people thought Elijah was because Elijah was an Old Testament guy who never died. There's this, this story about Elijah just never dying and him getting taken away. So they thought, well, that guy never died. So maybe, maybe God took him and then sent him back and that's this guy because Jesus at that time, even if you didn't believe he was, he was God or anything unique, he was doing incredible miracles and everybody recognized him as a religious leader. So they thought, well, maybe he's Elijah or they just started throwing out whatever they could. Next verse. But what about you? And this is fascinating. He goes, well, but what about you? Who do, who do you say that I am? And, and, and to me, this has got to be the most powerful question, right? Because if we ask other people what they think about Jesus, that's really not important to what you think about Jesus. Like, wh- how do you fill in the blank? How do you respond to the person of Jesus. Now, here's here's what I found is that everybody believes in God or disbelieves in God for three primary reasons. Are you ready for this? I, I want to show you something real quick here that most people, if you look at why they believe or disbelieve in God, it usually comes down to three reasons. Number one reason is this right here. There, there's an intellectual reason. Right. And if you talk to people about why they believe in God or disbelieve in God, and usually the people that disbelieve in God lean heavily the most on this one. They're like, well, I don't believe in God because of this. And they start giving you all their scientific information. Well, I don't believe in God because of this and this and this. And they think that they found enough information. Now, there's other people that have gone on the same journey. thought, I want to know if the God thing is real. And because of their intellectual journey, they actually found that there was more evidence to conclude that God was real than what wasn't. And they started down that road. And so there's an intellectual reason as to why you believe or disbelieve in God. The second one is this. It's the emotional reason. Like you have an emotional reason why or why you don't 
believe in God. You just do. Like, there are certain people in life, and you've heard this story before, they're like, well, I don't believe in God because this bad experience happened to me, and I don't believe that if God were real and if God were really kind and loving, that he would allow such a bad experience to happen to me. You've ever heard that argument before? And yet other people have the same exact reason for why they do turn to God in faith, right? They turn to God in faith because they say, because of this horrible event that took place in my life, it drew me to need God. And that's what emptied me of myself to know that I can't live life on my own and I can't save myself and I need something more. So the same emotional reason that drove some other people away from God also drew people towards God. Okay, are you all with me? Do you need a refill on coffee or... Okay, good. So, so there's an intellectual reason, there's an emotional reason. This was going to shock you, but there's a social reason. Yeah, don't get because because have you ever had this argument? You start talking about to somebody about why they don't believe in God, and they say, "Well, I don't believe in God because I have intellectual reasons." But the only reason you believe in God is because that's the way you were raised. So, Todd, because you grew up in the South, that's why you believe in Jesus. It's in the water. Remember you that the reason why you turn to God is because of where you were raised and they would say something like but if you were raised in Madagascar you wouldn't believe in Jesus like you do so the reason why you believe in Jesus is 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 social it's weird because to the to the atheistic person the argument falls flat because if I were to say yeah but if you grew up in Madagascar you wouldn't believe or disbelieve in God the way that you do does that make sense So, like, it's all three of them. So when I examined my life, I had a point in my life where I was kind of, like, lost. And in my lostness, I knew I needed something. That was an emotional reason. Because I grew up going to church, it was just kind of like, well, if I know that I need God, that's that's just where I go to find God. And in doing so, I ended up finding later in life as I pursued Jesus. Meaning, I took a step of faith even though I didn't fully know, but the more that I knew, the more I was convinced that there's a legitimate intellectual reason for believing in God. Are you with me now? So everybody fills in the blank from somewhere that, you know, some of you, for example, you have these different childhood experiences. They help you fill in the blank when you were a little kid and you had this experience and I knew I needed Jesus and they have their story. For others of you, you, it was such a struggle. You're like, I grew up and nobody ever took me to church and my parents didn't believe. And I always struggle and all my teachers and all my professors. But one day and then so you got your story. It comes from somewhere. What you need to do is figure out how do I fill in the blank. Now, now here's what's fascinating here is that the way that Peter responds is pretty incredible. So let's go back to the scripture. The Bible says that Jesus asked them the question, who do you say that I am? Next verse. Simon Peter answered, well, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this is, this is awesome. This is where Jesus takes off, and we're going to read the whole text. But Peter's response was this. Jesus was asking, how do you, Peter, how do you personally fill in the blank? Not other people and what they say about me. What do you personally say about me? And he goes, mm, you're the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on a second and says, this is incredible because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, he revealed to you. He was like, ding, 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 ding. You, you got it right. Now, here's the problem that you and I have, though. Sometimes these are foreign words. Like, like 
the way most of your Bibles will read, it says you are the Christ, which Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. They're, they're interchangeable. Most of us think Jesus had a last name and it was Christ. So like there was Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, they had a kid named Jesus Christ, and that's where Jesus came from. That's not, that wasn't his name. Christ was a title. Does that make sense? And his title, so, so the Greek word just means the anointed one, or the Hebrew word Messiah means the same thing, the anointed one. Here's what you need to know about that term. For all of Jewish history, pointing all the way back to the very, very beginning of human time, and when they began to record all things, back when Adam and Eve were around. If you remember the story of Adam and Eve, remember there's a snake in a garden and an apple, which is just really fruit. They didn't say an apple, but we always think an apple. Why is that? And so, you remember it was all Eve's fault, right? I just want to see if I get a reaction out of people. Eve took the thing that Adam, they start eating the apple together, they fall into sin, and then here's, here's what happens. Is that God speaks. And God says... One day, this is Genesis 3.15, if you want to look it on for yourself. He says, one day, I'm going to send someone into the earth to right the wrong. Genesis 3.15. I'm going to send someone into the earth to right the wrong. And Genesis 3.15 is the first time ever the idea is mentioned in all of Scripture that something is coming. And so then the Jewish prophets, all of them, Moses mentions the idea. David mentions the idea. Daniel mentions the idea. Isaiah mentions the idea. And they all start sharing these prophecies. Everybody say prophecies. A prophecy is just kind of like a future prediction. It's something that these guys felt inspired by God to write and say one day. And they all had the same message, but they all had different details that would come out. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But all these prophecies, all these predictions, they all root around this one thing. One day. Someone's coming and they will right the wrong. One day someone's coming and they will put right all things that have gone wrong. They will be king. They will be ruler. They will be deliverer. They will be savior. They will be. And then all things will be as God intended them to be. And they gave this word Messiah. Everybody say Messiah. And that was what Peter was responding to. He was saying, this is Messiah. Now, if you, if you wonder about this, you ever wonder why Jewish people didn't just buy into the Jesus thing? Is because they had a difficult time in their time period trying to figure out if Jesus really who was who he said he was. So, for example, when Jesus said he was the Messiah, they expected him to right all the wrongs of their current day, which was Rome. Rome was this evil dictator empire and was the iron boot and the iron fist that was constantly beating them up, robbing them of their taxes. They would do they, they would just they would rule with an iron fist. And so when you want somebody to right the wrong in, in your day, in your time, and he doesn't do that, how many know that person then is not who he said he was? But Jesus, I mean, when he was sitting down with Pilate before he was crucified, they asked him, are you, are you the king? And Jesus said, it is just like you said this. But he wasn't the king that they thought he was going to be. And so they missed it. There's all kinds of other ideas. So when you listen to the prophecies of the Old Testament, so like in the book of Isaiah, it talks about in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would come and would suffer. But then in Isaiah chapter 11, it says that the Messiah would come and he would reign as a king. So which one is it? As a matter of fact, there was a little bit of a debate inside of Judaism at that time that there was not maybe just one Messiah, but maybe there was two Messiahs that would come at the same time. 
That was just a thought that they had. They, they, I mean, a prophecy is kind of unclear. It's kind of vague. And then when it comes together, you're like, oh, that's what that meant. So they thought all these prophecies that one was a suffering servant and one was a reigning king. Maybe there's two messiahs that come once. And what they didn't realize was, is what if it was one messiah that came twice? What if in his first visit he would come as a suffering servant and in his second visit he would come as a reigning king? Thus fulfilling all the old prophecies that would have to be fulfilled for you to be the Messiah. He goes, that's who you are. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are the one that would come and make all things right. Even what Jesus referred to himself as. You ever thought about this? There's a misconception inside of Christianity because when we read the Bible, we're English people, and we read the Bible from an English Bible, and we we just have our own context, right? Certain things are lost in translation. So I've heard a number of different Bible teachers talk about how Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. And what that meant was is that he was referring to the fact that he was human. And then people called him the Son of God, and that referred to the fact that he was all human and yet all God all at the same time. And from an English standpoint, that makes logical sense, right? But to them, it wasn't like that. So when Jesus said over and over again, his, his title that he always gave for himself was, I am the Son of Man. What he was actually playing on was one of those Old Testament predictions, those Old Testament prophecies about who Messiah would be. As a matter of fact, let's read it together. Daniel chapter 7 says this. Daniel says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a what? The son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days. This was a, a term that Daniel used for God Almighty. The ancient, that's just a really cool way, right? The ancient of days. So he said that that the son of man approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given what? Authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. See, some people thought, well, well, Jesus wasn't uh, wasn't God. That that Messiah didn't mean that he was God, actually. No, it, it trust me, it does. Because you don't take from God glory, right? That's impossible. You don't take from God sovereign power. You don't, you don't get that unless you are God. And so this is the idea that Jesus was not just this kind of savior figure. No, he actually was God. But he was given all these things. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So you know what Jesus said about himself? He said, hey, I'm that guy. That's me. I'm the son of man. So if anybody ever tells you that Jesus never actually claimed to be the son of God, they don't know what they're talking about. As a matter of fact, I read an article just this week. I'm prepping for this sermon, and sure enough, Yahoo's my homepage, right? So when I pull up my internet browser, Yahoo just pops up, and then I go surfing wherever I want. And, but, but on Yahoo, certain things catch my attention, and there was an article kind of right near the top, and it was called Nine Things You Thought You Knew About Jesus That Weren't Actually True. And you'll see this every time around Christmas. Some channels run in a special about Jesus and the real birth of Jesus. And then right around Easter, the History Channel, Discovery Channel, all these people running the real death of Jesus or the real life of Jesus. And then what you find is, is that everybody gets on there and everybody has their own fill in the blank, don't they? They've got their own reason why they believe Jesus is something or isn't something. And sure enough, this guy gets on there and says, actually, you think he was single, but he was married. Listen to me. There is no evidence whatsoever that indicates that Jesus was married. 
Dan Brown, that whole thing is based on a, a, a document written 300 years after the time of Jesus called the Gospel of Philip that were written by a bunch of what we call Gnostic Christians or Gnostic people that they actually don't believe in Jesus the way we do. They believe like uh, it's almost like a polytheistic multi-god thing. They're just down for whatever. Anything spiritual is good. Anything flesh is bad. That's their, that's their motto. 300 years later, they, they find this, this, or they, this document's written, and, and they, they base this idea that Jesus was married based on that. Now, now, let me ask you a question. How long ago was 300 years? And how confident are you finding a document that was written 300 years after the fact being that incredibly accurate? When, when in all reality, the Gospels that we read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I mean, there are mathematicians that have verified that these are written by eyewitness accounts. So, again, Jesus was, was not married, but you find out somebody's trying to fill in the blank. The, the, one of the other things was that Jesus actually had short hair, not long hair. Which maybe he did. I don't even know. I don't even care. Um, I, 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 they had all these different goofy ideas. And so, how do you fill in the blank? The way Peter filled in the blank was that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one who would make all things right. And the Jewish people of Jesus' day, they wanted him to make Rome right. He wanted to make Israel. They wanted Israel back on the map as a, as a dominant kingdom. They wanted to overthrow Rome and all their thugs. And then Jesus comes in and dies. And it just wrecks them. Because Jesus' idea was this. I'm not coming just to save you from a particular context. I'm coming to save you and all of mankind for all of history, because I will save them from their sins. So they missed it, many of them. They didn't know. that Because once you get locked into something and your mind gets locked in that Jesus must be this way, it takes a lot to get you to kind of shake out of that thing. And these people were locked into the Messiah had to be a certain thing. And then when Jesus came, they missed it. But Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's keep going into the text now. So Jesus responds. It says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my father in heaven. Now, I find this fascinating to think about. He was saying, Peter, this is not an idea that you got from other people. This was an idea that God somehow introduced and revealed to you. Which, which brings on all kinds of questions like, hey, is, when a person really comes to faith in God, did they do it on their own or did God awaken something in them? And maybe it's a little bit of both. Have you ever, maybe your own personal life is like this. This is the way mine is. When, when I was 17 and I became a Christian, do you think that was the first time I'd ever heard about Jesus? No, of course not. But what was interesting was is that it took me being in the right place in my mind, in my heart, in my circumstances, in my life, and at the right moment, it seemed that God spoke to me and I was actually ready for it. Have you ever had a moment like that? And if you're here today and you're not a believer, but you say, Todd, I've had moments where I felt like God wanted me or God wanted me to seek or God wanted me to search or God wanted me to go to church. But I just kind of brushed it off. I would say, be careful. I don't know how many of those you get. I don't know. I would just say that it seems that when your mind and your heart and your circumstances and everything is ready, that God whispers into those moments. Because you ever notice how God doesn't force himself on you? Like God didn't force you to be here today, did he? God's never awoken you in your sleep and shooken you and threatened you. <laughs> Believe in me or else I will haunt you in your sleep. He didn't do that. That God doesn't force, that God invites. 
that God somehow just kind of stirs up something in you. And he creates these moments because you know that certain times in your life, somebody introduced you to Jesus, but you were not ready. I don't know why. And then somebody came along and it just happened to be the right moment, the right time and the right words were spoken and everything converges. And then you knew. And if you're out there today and you say, I've never had that moment before. Whenever the moment arises that you feel any inkling. Here's why. If you're not sure about faith in God, in particular faith about Jesus, here's what I want you to do. Just try it. And here's why. And I'm going to make a statement, and you might need to write this down. Weak faith in a strong object is always better than strong faith in a weak object. Does that make sense? Maybe, maybe you can put a weak faith in a strong... Let, let's say that you're here today and you say, I'm not sure about the whole God thing and I'm not sure about the Jesus thing. I'm telling you that if you even have the inkling and idea, just start walking that direction. Let, let me put it like this. Let's say you fell off a cliff and as you're falling, because you're very conscious when you're falling, clearly, and, and you see a branch hanging off this cliff and you think to yourself, I think that if I grab this branch that it can save me, Right? Now, you don't know if the branch can save you, but what's your best bet? At least try. Because if you have weak faith, even if you're not sure if the branch can save you, if you reach out and grab it, the branch can save you. But other people have strong faith in a weak object, right? This is proof that people can be sincere about their faith and yet sincerely wrong. They have strong faith, but it's in a weak object. What I'm telling you is that there is no stronger object in the earth than who Jesus is. There is no stronger person in all of human history than who Jesus is. You can at least trust in that, that he is the most influential figure in all of human history, that there is something unique about him that is unlike any other person in human history. There's at least that about him. That no other life compares to his. He's the strong object. And I'm telling you that if you just have a weak faith, weak faith in a strong object is better than strong faith in a, in a weak object. If there's just the inkling, I want you to pursue. If there's just the inkling of faith, I want you to just walk that way. It would make more sense to at least give it a chance. So let's keep reading. The Bible says, when we go back, he says, Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. I'm still quoting because this, there we go. But my father who is in heaven, next verse, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock. Now, there was a unique wordplay. Like if you wonder why the Catholic Church came up with St. Peter and the Pope and all this stuff is because of this verse right here. They believed that Peter was the rock that the whole church would be built on. We don't believe that. Here's why. This, there, there's a there's a wordplay going on here that Jesus uses. Si, or Peter's original name was Simon. Okay? And, and then Jesus gives him the name Peter as well. And usually in their day, names were linked to your father. So you wouldn't carry your last name. They didn't have last names. You would just be you, son of your dad. And so they, the, but Peter means stone. Everybody say stone. So he goes, I tell you that you're a stone. And on this rock. Now, this is a different word. So it's not stone and stone. It's not, Peter, you're a stone, and on that stone I'm going to build my church. It's two different words. This means stone like a small rock. This means boulder. It's huge. And so he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, what's the this rock? This rock is the idea that Jesus actually was the one, the Christ, the Messiah, the king who would come and make all things right. That on that truth, on that revelation, on that rock, Jesus would build his following. This is interesting, too. This word here, church, um, that's not a real word. 
Church is a German word. I don't know if you knew this or not. So, like, Jesus never, ever once said, I'm going to build a building. I'm never Actually, this was the Greek word ecclesia, and he said, I'm going to build my gathering. I'm going to build a community of faith. I'm going to build a fellowship. Because in every ancient religion, wasn't there always like a temple and a place and a thing, and you had to go make sacrifices? And Jesus said, we're done with that. You don't need a place. You just need a gathering. And you need me. That's all you need in life. And so we came up later with the word church. We're probably not going to change that. But the original word was it was a gathering. It was the, the, the church of Jesus was never meant to be confined to a building with pews or stained glass windows or big chandeliers or anything like that. It was meant to be movement. It was meant to be fluid. This is why the first century church ended up reaching the entire known world in one generation. Why? Because they were fluid. They had no location. They were mobile. And they were ready to take on the world. Let, let, let's keep reading. So he goes, no, no, go back. So he said, on this truth, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And that sounds great, doesn't it? Like my church is going to be so awesome. We're going to take on hell with a water gun. And we're just going to go and do and kick tail and take names. And, you know, that. That's not exactly what he meant here. Actually, OK, so let's talk about context and I'm going to wrap it up. Where did Jesus go to have this little illustrative time? He went to a place called Caesarea Philippi which was in the north, way headed north of, of Jerusalem. It was near the Sea of Galilee. It was a city called Caesarea Philippi. It used to be called Panias, but they changed the name. And so the guy named it after himself and Caesar. Isn't that cool when you can just name places after yourself and change names just because you want to? And uh, can you go that to your street? When you want to do that, like go out to your street, like we're changing this. I don't live on Curlew. I live on Todd Street. Just change stuff. This isn't Livermore. It's Toddmore. And so when you're, when you're a king, you do whatever you want. And so he changed the name of the city to Caesarea Philippi because he, his name was Philip and he, he was honoring Caesar. It used to be called Panias. And the reason it was called Panias, and this is really, really gross, so put on your seatbelt. Um, this used to be a place of pagan worship. This is where they would worship the Greek fertility gods. And Pan was his name. It was half human, half goat was their deity. And he was the god that they worshiped here so because the god was named pan they named the city after him and they named it panias and i wish i had a picture of it. i should have brought you a picture there's actually a place there where jesus had this illustrative moment you can go and visit it today it's literally a mountain and inside of it there's a cleft and then a spring that comes up out of it and they called it the gate to the underworld or in the greek they would call it the gate of Hades, or we would then refer it in english to as what the gate of hell this is where they believed that the gods that they worshipped would go down into the underworld during the winter and in the spring they would come back. And to get the gods to come back, they would come and worship and sacrifice and do ungodly things to animals. I'll leave it at that. So, so that they could get the... And so... This is not where you take youth group. This isn't something that was going on. Like way back when it was historical visit. It was going on right then and there. Like right then and there, Jesus is like, come on, guys, youth group time. We're going on a field trip to watch the goat thing. Ugh. And it was in this place that Jesus has this illustrative moment. And it's in this place that he has this question. How do you fill in the blank? And Peter responds and he says the most brilliant thing. He says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. And it was in this place that Jesus says now on that truth and that reality. I want you to know that you're going to be able to take on the gates of hell. Meaning that the church was not meant to be confined to a place of only religious people, only 
uh, pious people, only righteous people. But actually, this truth would be most powerful if we took it into some of the most darkest places of the world. Some of the most wicked and evil places of the world. You know where Jesus needs to go? Everywhere. Not just the synagogue. Not just with holy people, with holy men and holy buildings, with holy words and all that. No, 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 no. Evil places, wicked places, crazy places, weird places. That's where the message of Jesus needs to go. So if you're in here today and you say, Todd, that's, that's great. What's the walk away for me? The walk away for you is this, is where do you take this powerful message that you believe in? Where do you take it? Because you have a job, you have a neighborhood, you have a community, you've got a PTA, you've got a guys group, you've got a thing, you've got a work environment, you've got a job site, you've got a set of cubicles. You've got something. There's a world around you. And Jesus says, hey, I want you to take this into the world. Like, the fact that Jesus is the one who came to save people from their sins, to make things right in their life. That's not a thing that was meant to be confined to a church building. It was meant to be fluid. It was meant to be a movement. And it should go everywhere, even to the darkest places of the world. How do you fill in the blank? For Jesus, he called himself the Son of Man. He said, I'm that guy. Daniel 7, the one that they've been talking about for thousands of years, this unique figure that would step into human history and would make all things right. That's who I am. Last illustration story. I'm going to wrap up right here. There's this, um, there's this story I came upon. It was C.S. Lewis wrote a, a response to a Russian astronaut. In 1961, Russia got to outer space before America did. And the guy's name was, I wrote it down, his name was Yuri Gargan. And he went into outer space. He made one orbit around the earth. They, they, they measured how much time it was. And it was a big, huge success story. And if you remember, we were in a war right then. It was the Cold War. But it was also this war of, like, who would, who would get to outer space first. And Russia beat us to outer space. And so when this guy comes back, he's a national hero. And he's doing all these interviews. And they asked him all kinds of questions. But one of the questions they asked him was this. Is that, hey, you went into the heavens. Did you see God? And he goes, no, I looked and I looked and I looked, but I did not see God. He is not there. He does not exist. And so C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest writers of, of, of our day and time in history, he wrote an essay called Finding God slash Finding Shakespeare. And he goes on to say in this essay, he says, for you to go into outer space, and I'm summarizing, he said, for you to go into outer space and to look for God and to assume that you would find him, it is as if you read every bit of Shakespeare and went to every one of his plays expecting to find Shakespeare. He goes, now, Shakespeare's actually there in such a unique way that he's laced throughout everything, but he's never actually in the story the way that Lady Macbeth or Hamlet are in the story. That for you to go into outer space and expect to, to find God is as if you were to somehow to relate to God as if God were in the story. But God's not in the story. He created the story that if you wanted to relate to God, you would relate to God more like the author, not a character in the story. Because for God to even be God, you have to remember that he would have to create time and space for you to even exist in. But God doesn't exist in time and space. He exists outside of time and space. David said it was so fascinating he could hold the universe in the palm of his hand is the way that he understood it. He said, so, so the reason why so many people have a hard time relating to God or trying to figure out who God is, is you're trying to find God within a construct that God created when God's not in it. That literally he is outside of that. And so because of that, sometimes it is difficult to grasp the idea of who God is and what is he like and what is he up to. But what if God were to write himself 
into the story. So in the 1900s, or the early part of the 1900s, there was this, this author. It was a female author. She was the first graduate from Oxford. Her name was Dorothy Sayers. And she wrote this series of really popular detective novels. And, and the main character was this really studly dude who would just solve, he's like the, the modern Sherlock Holmes of his day, right? And he would just solve all these detective cases, and, and he was super, super cool. Well, funny enough, about three or four books into this series of detective novels, Dorothy Sayers writes in a female character into the story. And as it turns out, what she had done is, is that she is an author who wasn't married. She as an author fell in love with the character that she wrote. And she so fell in love with the character that she wrote, and she felt sorry for him because he, was, he wasn't married and he was kind of lonely. She wrote in a character who was her. And in the story, they get married and fall madly in love and live together happily ever after. This is her writing herself into the story so that what was once the author is now actually a character that can be related to. So you ask yourself, who is Jesus? You find God, the author, creating time and space and putting us into it. And God is everywhere at all times, but you can't find him as if he's a character in the story until. And he even tells us he's going to do it. He's one day. I'm going to write myself into the story and I'm going to make all things right. One day it's coming when the time is right and everything's perfect. I'm going to write myself into the story and make all things right. And then 2000 years ago, this person, Jesus, enters into human history, lives a life of perfection, dies on a cross and rises three days later so that he may make all things right. What would it be like if God so fell in love with his own creation, but he saw that his creation was hurting and desperate and lonely and lost, and he thought, I could save them. But how will they relate to me unless I write myself into the story? Jesus is that one. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me today. If you're in here today and you say, man, that, that, that's a lot to think about, and, and I don't know that I've ever considered it that way, then hey, today's your day. Because I told you, weak faith in a strong object is better than strong, a strong faith in a weak object. If you have even the remote inkling, the slightest hint of saying, I'd like to know more, then here's what I want you to do. First of all, I want you to get in here for the next several weeks and discover who Jesus is as we walk down this journey. But even today, in your heart, I just want you to say a little prayer. It could be the first prayer you ever pray in your entire life. And the prayer would go something like this. God, I don't exactly know who you are. And Jesus, I don't exactly know who you are, but I want to know and I want to walk towards you. And that's it. And it's those little steps of faith. It's those little movements when you turn in your heart towards God that something incredible begins to happen. And if you're in here today and you say, Todd, I, this is my church and I've been saved since Moses was around and I just, I'm down for anything, then here's what I want you to do because this is your walk away. That revelation, that truth, that amazing thought, that amazing revelation of who Jesus is, I need you to take that into the darkest places that you can find. I need you to take that to the people who need it the most. Because this was never meant to be stagnant and locked and trapped in a building. It was meant to be fluid. It was a movement and it was supposed to go everywhere. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us today as your people, God, to, to be like you to be your kindness, to be your grace, to be your love, and God, to take that into the darkest places of the world. So, Father, we pray today, God, that you would speak to us no matter where we're at on that spectrum of faith. God, if we're strong faith, weak faith, everything in the middle, God, help us all to take one more step closer to you, God. That is our prayer today in Jesus' name.
And we all said, Amen. Can you give the Lord a big hand clap this morning?